we get out a sheet of paper, just going to ask you a couple questions about Isaiah, right? So while we're picking up. Except for this Thursday and next Thursday. Except for this Thursday and next Thursday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll be there. All right. A couple of questions. The first one, uh, uh, multiple choice. All right. A good? Deal? Some of you aren't even like pretending like you're going to write or try here. I need you to step it up, okay? This is just lovingly kind of, it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm in school and have to take quizzes every week and sometimes the professors anger me and I take that anger out on you. Um, it's nothing to do with that. I don't know why we've been mentioned that. Um, so the first question is this. Uh, who is Isaiah's original audience? A, all of Israel. B, the northern kingdom of Israel. C, the southern kingdom of Judah. Or D, the Gentiles. Who is Isaiah's original audience of this big old book? A, all of Israel. B, the northern kingdom, otherwise known as Israel. C, the southern kingdom of Judah. D, the Gentiles. Got that? Having fun yet? Hating life? All right. Uh, number two. We used a courtroom illustration last week and had three characters. One was the judge. So who was the judge? And this courtroom illustration of the book of Isaiah. Who is the lawyer pleading the judge's case? And who is the star witness? The courtroom illustration. Who is the judge in that illustration that we use? Because this is really... At least half of the book of Isaiah is, is seen as a courtroom. We talked about the law and order music in the background. Um, there's judge, who's represented the judge, lawyer, pleading the judge's case, and star witness. How are we doing so far? There's just two more questions. You're halfway done. All right. This is a fill in the blank. I mentioned this last week. It's very important, the theme of Isaiah. One thing Isaiah does in this book is compare everyone else to Yahweh in his blank. One thing Isaiah does in this book is compare everyone else to Yahweh in his list that, I'll give you a hint, attribute. Who has written anything down at this point? Anybody? Yeah. Who has not written anything down? You need to confess right now. <laughs> All right. You know, no, All right. Last one. What nation, who serves as the antagonist here? What people group serves as the antagonist who's rising up against God's people in Isaiah? Who is it that God delivers his people from in the 30s, in chapter 33 through 39, I believe, in Isaiah? Who is the main antagonist in this group that is warring against Israel or threatening uh, the, the nation that's there? It's not even Israel, so sort of A or B in the first one, you're wrong. All right. That would be the that aren't Christian. That's right. That's true. Very true. All right. Um, number one, who is the original audience? Is it A, B, C, or D? C. C. Nice, Tony. That's right. It's the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, that's why original audience is important, because obviously the audience now is all of us, right, Gentiles, but the original audience is the southern kingdom of Israel. Judah, Judah, right? Not Israel, sorry. Which is the southern kingdom of the people of Israel. Uh, all right, so southern kingdom of Judah, that's C. Good. Courtroom illustration, who's the judge? What's that? The Lord? That's right. All right, who's the lawyer pleading the Lord's case? 
Isaiah. Isaiah. That's right. And who is the star witness? It is the servant with a capital S, which is the Messiah, right? Jesus. So the second half, when you see the end of the book, it's going to be the star witness who comes on the scene. We're actually going to see that today. This servant, capital S, who leads the Messiah. Good job, guys. All right. One thing I did, Isaiah does in this book is compare everyone else to Yahweh in his. It's the attribute that's listed three times. Over and Holiness. over. Holiness, right? One thing Isaiah does all throughout the book, remember this is the theme, is there is no God but Yahweh over and over again. But he compares the uh, all the idolatries of all the nation of Judah to one thing. He says, okay, but God is holy. Okay, you, but look at the holiness of God. Okay, this thing that you worship, this people group, but let's examine God and his holiness over and over again. Okay, it's the main thing. The last one, who, what people group is the antagonist? Incorrect. Good guess. Incorrect. Assyrians. That's right. So remember what happens is Assyria takes over the north. This is the context here. Assyria took over the northern kingdom of Israel already, and now they're threatening against Judah. Now, the Babylonians will be the ones who take over Judah eventually, but in this context, the Lord delivers his people from the further uh, destruction of his people through the Assyrians. So he delivers them again. All right. Did you like that? Was that fun for you? Fun for me. All right. So let's move on. Um, okay, so we talked about the themes of the day of the Lord. We talked about prophecy in chapter 7 of Isaiah. Remember, we talked about near and far prophecy, how often this how prophecy works. I wanted to include this question, but I didn't. Remember, one of the reasons why there was an immediate fulfillment of a prophecy. So we used... Isaiah 7 as an example, that prophecy of there being a virgin birth, right? The government will rest upon his shoulders. Uh, why would there need to be an immediate pro uh, fulfillment of that prophecy in that day? Prove, prove he's a prophet. That's right, right? Because how do you prove somebody's a prophet? They're right, when they <laughs> prophesy, something comes true. So that's one of the reasons, and yet there is an even farther fulfillment. So that immediate fulfillment of that one who's going to come and deliver uh, Judah from the Assyrians... Um, in chapter 7 is actually temporarily, typically fulfilled in chapter 8, but we know it's referring to Jesus according to Matthew chapter 1. Then we talked about the day of the Lord, how Isaiah so far more than any other book is really pointing forward to that future eschatological or end times age, right, where we won't have to deal with any of this stuff anymore. Um, and so we looked at the key text there. We looked at chapter 24. I believe that's where we ended, right? Because there's a reversal of creation. And so now we're at chapter 36 through 39. I believe that's where we left off. We'll finish out quickly here. We'll try and get into Jeremiah and Lamentations today. All right. Chapters 36 through 39, they give us an historical interlude right in the middle of the book. So a lot could be said here, but I just want to give you an overview of this again so you can read it on your own time. And if you're new with us, remember, this is Old Testament survey. So what we're doing is, is teaching you how each book of the Old Testament points to Jesus. But we're not going through every line of the book. We're giving you a survey, hence the name of the class. So the plot to chapters 36 and 39 is this. Assyria just conquered the northern kingdom. Judah's next on the list. It's time for those promises in chapter 7 to come true. And long story short, Yahweh delivers his people. He brings down Assyria 
who, by the way, since they just took over the northern kingdom, they're really puffed up and arrogant at this time. Uh, so again, we also see the reason why Yahweh saves his people. So go ahead and get your Bibles out. And somebody turn to Isaiah chapter 39 and read verses 5 through 7 for me. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, who you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my day. Okay, so this is what happened, right? It's, it's God just delivered. Judah from Assyria um, because of his promise. Remember, all of this takes place because the seed of the serpent warring against the seed of the woman. Yahweh is insistent on preserving his plan of redemption, seeing it through. But then just as Assyria conquered Judah's enemies, he's predicting something. Because of their sin, what's going to happen? What does he say in the verse? Who's coming? Babylon's coming. They're on their way. And they're not going to get out of it this time. So, so the line of David does narrowly escape the schemes of the devil, but this time, as always, it's going to be for their own sins that the nation will go into captivity. They'll come out, come out of it over 100 years after Isaiah makes this prophecy, and it's a scary prophecy. I mean, just look at verse 7 again. It's, it's just, And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs. In the palace of the king of Babylon, the heirs to the throne of Judah will be eunuchs in the land. Why is that terrifying? What do we know about eunuchs? They don't have a whole lot of lineage, right? Uh, no, they don't. Uh, eunuchs don't have children. So it's a, it's a frightful prophecy. But then the rest of the book is going to be about how Yahweh will overcome even this huge deck that's stacked against his people to preserve his promise. Remember, often what we see in prophecy is a whole lot of judgment and warning and judgment and warning, but they're always, in every single one of the major and minor prophets, is a remnant that the promise will prevail, as we talk about often. So we move on to chapter 40. Here's where that courtroom scene really comes out. Yahweh is calling his people to testify to the nations that he alone is God, but they failed. They've perjured themselves through idolatry. So Yahweh is going to turn to his star witness, which we said was who? The servant of the Lord. That servant will also be the Savior who is going to rescue his people from exile in Babylon and bring them a great deliverance. So no wonder this section begins this way in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. And cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These are words of Yahweh's coming salvation. So we skip ahead to chapter 44. Again, I just I wish we had time to look at all this in detail. Really, 40 to the rest of Isaiah. It's just wonderful. Um, all of it's wonderful. But this, this text, if you want to know about who God is, it is incomparableness. I don't think it's a word, but I just made that. Um, read Isaiah 40 through 44, really. Um, so, 
uh, you'll get the, the feel of the courtroom motif as you read through this, and you'll be struck with how great Yahweh is presented. Uh, real quick, though, somebody read uh, chapter 44, verse 28 for me. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. All right, so what's the significance of Cyrus? Does anybody remember from our study on history who this Cyrus guy is? God told him to build a temple, send people by. That's right. So Cyrus, remember, is the one who's going to sign the edict to send God's people back to Jerusalem nearly 200 years after this verse was penned. That's pretty cool, right? So Yahweh actually names the very man before he's even born, let alone before he comes to power. It's with such detail that Yahweh controls the future. All right, we move on to chapter 49. Because this section, though, is not about Cyrus ultimately, nor the way he'll serve Yahweh's purposes. Rather, just like so much else in Isaiah, Cyrus is but a small shadow of a greater servant of Yahweh. And the freedom he grants to God's people is just a foretaste of the greater freedom to come through another. Somebody read chapter 49, verse 5 for me. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb? to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Alright, so yeah, here, here's a servant. It said to be, only to, to be the only one to bring the preserved ones of Israel back to the Lord. But he's also to reach out and call the Gentiles to join the people of God. So the servant will bless all the nations of the earth like none before ever have. And this great servant of the Lord who will save both Jews and Gentiles is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But how is he going to do it? That's important. How will he save so many and lead his people out of their exile from the Lord's presence? Now you know where we're going, right? Because we cannot visit Isaiah without visiting Isaiah chapter 53, right? Uh, just beautiful. Isaiah chapter 53. I'll go ahead and read verses 3 through 6. I'm sure you've heard this text. If you haven't, remember, this is describing the Lord Jesus from the Old Testament, uh, unlike some other texts you've ever heard probably in your life. This is remarkable. Here it goes. He is despised and rejected by men. The servant of the Lord. This is who he is. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Amen. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did you note that in verse 5? What was the problem with humanity here, according to verse 5? Transgressions and sin. That's right. Sin. Absolutely right, Bob. Transgression, iniquity, sin, Becky, it's, it's our sins. That's what has made the separation between God and us. That's 
Judah's problem, that's our problem. It's listed here, sin. Judah's removal from the land was just a small symbol of the real problem. Our removal from the presence and fellowship with God because of our sin. So if a savior is going to reconcile us to God, then what's he going to have to deal with? He's going to have to deal with our sin. He's going to have to make an atonement for that sin. And that's exactly what this prophecy is saying about the work of Jesus Christ. He was pierced. He was crushed. Why? In order to bring God's people back to God. But the story doesn't end there. After the servant's death, Yahweh also raised him to life. Someone read verses 10 through 12. To 12, yes. Um, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, a righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded the rebels. So, get this. A- after Jesus pours out his life. He's then rewarded with prolonged days and victory. Thus now our crucified Savior is right now reigning at the right hand of God. He's not dead. He's risen and reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth. Okay, so okay. Last section, chapter 61. The rest of the book is a full celebration of that salvation and imagery of the new heavens and new earth. So it finds its consummation of looking forward to that day. But before we should look at one last passage, um, what, yeah, I'm sorry. Let's look at one last passage here in chapter 61. Somebody read the first three verses of Isaiah 61 for me. So the first three verses? First three verses, yeah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our Lord, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Alright, so so think about this. Does that sound familiar to any of you from the New Testament? Who, who preaches that? That this is his Jesus, right? The temple is what he preaches to them. That this is him. He, in that sermon, is saying, I'm the servant of the Lord, right? This is who I am. And so, we're going to look at this a lot more than the other prophets. But for now, we'll simply point out that the Holy Spirit is going to be the servant's helper when he comes. And the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit at his baptism is a symbol that the new age has dawned. And that Jesus will accomplish the salvation here predicted. Okay. So concluding Isaiah, I know there, there's a lot of important material here. If I ever preach to this book, just know it may be the last book you ever hear alive preached at Craig Abel's. Not because you're old, but because it will take me 50 years. But um, still, uh, altogether, the book is an exaltation of the majesty and the glory of God. And that majesty and that glory, they're demonstrated in the course of history as Judah undergoes 
some terribly difficult trials. That majesty and that glory are the most powerfully trumpeted in Yahweh's faithfulness to the house of David, which is faithfulness to his promise and his ability to control the future and to save his people. So that is Isaiah. Now we move on. Next, to Jeremiah and Lamentations. This is written as one lesson. Lamentations just has a page at the back. We probably won't get there. That's okay. Um, but as always, when we start a new book, we start where? Context. context. That's right. We start with the historical context. And I, you know, if you like taking quizzes and getting right answers, I'm not saying we're going to do this next week. Not saying that, Jason. But <laughs> if you like to know right answers, knowing the context is always, you know, going to be a, a token question. All right. Jeremiah, it, it's really actually... Uh, a little bit complex, his context, and also easy at the same time. I'll just give you the big picture. Uh, the northern kingdom, which was named Israel, Israel fell to the Assyrians. In what year? <laughs> Two years. You're always going to need to know in here, okay? 722. 722, northern kingdom, 586, southern kingdom, okay? The Syrians, remember that since they've been conquering the Babylonians, or they have been conquered by the Babylonians. So Assyrians came in, they conquered Israel, Judah fought back, the Lord delivered them. Syria was like, we're the boss now. Then Babylon comes in, they conquer Assyria, Syria's gone. The Babylonians, though, are now threatening the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where we are when the book opens. And so as the book progresses, Judah is invaded. By the time the book closes, the people of Judah have been led away in three waves of exile. And the city of Jerusalem, together with Solomon's great temple, remember that from 1 Kings? They've been destroyed. In 605 BC, the Babylonians took a large group of exiles off to Babylon. Then they did it again in 597 BC, one last time. And what was that year, I said? 586 BC. Good. That's when they raised the city and toward the temple to the ground. You can read about all that, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 22-25 and 2 Chronicles chapter 34-36. Remember, I'll say this again. Every time we look at a prophet, those prophets take place within the books of history. Right? That's, foot, book of, that's footnote number one in your notes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. Um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of books there as well listed. So, remember that. Jeremiah himself lived and prophesied all throughout this time. But that's just the, the international scene, historical context. There's also another historical situation inside of Judah itself that really needs to be talked about. Um, the covenant people of Judah have been involved in idolatry for decades. They've been worshipped every, every single deity that comes their way, from Baal to Molech to the Queen of Heaven, and engaging in such acts of worship as temple prostitution and child sacrifice. That, on top of open dishonesty, open corruption, open injustice, adultery, oppression, of the helpless slander, and so on. And they've been sent prophets all during this time for a, a long time. But they never repent. Would not repent. And all of that really leads me to the main issue at hand, which is the redemptive historical context. It revolves almost exclusively around the covenant between Yahweh and the people of Judah. All of this sin is the fallout of Judah's violation of the covenant made with Yahweh. 
All this political upheaval is the consequences of that disobedience. And that's the redemptive historical tension in the book. The people have made a shipwreck of the covenant. What covenant am I talking about, by the way? Abraham. Not Abraham's. Not David's. Mosaic covenant. Majority of the time when we talk about covenant in the Old Testament, it's, it's the Mosaic covenant. The if-then, right? Because, because this is what's important about the Mosaic covenant. The people of Israel are the ones who told the Lord, we will obey this covenant. They ratified it themselves and said, we will be faithful to your covenant. And then, I don't know if you've read any of the history books, they really spend like 0% of the time ever being faithful to the covenant. Uh, like, z- like zero. Like it's shocking. And yet the Lord's constantly faithful in reminding them, hey, this covenant we made, right? This is the covenant we made. And yet he's always faithful to his promise, even when they're unfaithful. So all of this is a shipwreck of the covenant. Now Jeremiah is announcing the covenant curses. Because in that context, when Judah ratified, or when Israel ratified that covenant, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the curses were listed. Here's what's going to happen if you break the covenant, the Lord says. And, and, and Jeremiah really just recapitulates that for them. They're, they're thrown off from Yahweh, and so what's going to happen next? Jeremiah prophesies their destruction. As well as Yahweh's new way forward to complete his plan of redemption, which is really what makes... Jeremiah so significant. Because in Jeremiah, this is what's beautiful, right? This is why the covenant's important here. Because in their breaking of the covenant, Jeremiah prophesies, hey, how about a new covenant? That that will no longer be based upon what you do, but will be based upon what I'm going to do for you in my blood. So, pretty important in Jeremiah. Alright, the theme. Jeremiah is another big book. And no short theme statement can really do justice to the whole thing. But nonetheless, this tries to encapsulate the theological center of the book that much of everything else is driving toward. And that is this. Old Covenant, it's failed. But not because there was anything defunct in it in itself, but because the people were not able to keep it due to their sinful hearts. Therefore, we need a new covenant, which will involve new hearts to the people of God. So again, uh, if as I said, if you're familiar with Jeremiah, it may sound like... I just made a beeline through the first 30 chapters to Jeremiah 31, um, but that's really not the case because chapter 31 is, it actually works as kind of like the theological mountaintop for the rest of the book. And so, so that everything before it is climbing to it and then descending from it. Uh, let me explain. See, the sentence focuses on two things, the covenant and the hearts of the people. The question that Jeremiah sets out to answer is, yes... Why was the covenant broke? And we know the covenant was broke by everybody. Right. And because of their the conclusion he comes to very early in his book is, is very clearly that very case. That the broken covenant's not the fault of the broken covenant. The covenant itself is not at fault. In other words, there's nothing wrong with the covenant. Rather, the problem lies with the people. They have not been able to keep it. I'll repeat that. They are they are unable to keep the covenant. And it's because their hearts are too in love with sin. If, if it's their hearts that are the problem, they're also unable to change their own hearts. So for the first 28 chapters, Jeremiah is very pessimistic, right? There's a reason why he's called the weeping prophet. It looks hopeless. They cannot keep the covenant because they have these rotten 
twisted, depraved hearts, and they cannot change their hearts. The only possible solution is if Yahweh sovereignly changes their hearts and makes them fit from the inside out to participate again in the covenant. So after 28 depressing chapters, that's where Jeremiah ends up. As I said, it's a big book. Really easy to get lost in a lot of the poetry and the historical narratives even. But if you can see that, that that's the overall message, which is again the goal here as we're reading this, that we understand that. And it's set in the specific redemptive historical context that was just mentioned. And you'll be able to make sense of everything else in the book. So you got the outline there with all the pivotal text. I'll leave that to read on your own. Um, let's jump into the theme text and we'll see how far we get. I won't keep it too long past 7.30, I promise. We're diving into Jeremiah. We're going to start at Jeremiah uh, 11, actually. Um, Jeremiah 11. Because it's impossible, again, to look at this entire book today. But much of the point of the book is going to be rehearsed for us in Jeremiah 11. So go ahead and turn there. Um, In this chapter, Yahweh lays the covenant out before the people. That's verses 1 through 6. Then Yahweh says that they've broken it two specific ways. By not listening to Yahweh and by turning to other gods. Finally, Yahweh pronounces his judgment against the people. That's in verses 11 through 17. And and again, the reason I chose chapter 11, just like Isaiah chapter 6, is because it's a really good microcosm of the rest of the first 28 chapters of Jeremiah. So as we go through this chapter, I'm going to point out some of Jeremiah's other major teachings that make an appearance in this text. Somebody start for me, though, by reading the first five verses of Jeremiah chapter 11. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I command your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you, so shall you be my people, and I will be your God that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. And I answered and said, So be it, Lord. All right, so any of that sound familiar? What's it bring you back to? A couple of books, actually. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, absolutely, is one. What's the other one? Exodus. Who said it? Say it louder. Say it with pride. Alright, Exodus. Alright, it's in verses 6 through 8, though, that things really cut loose, where it says this, And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the city of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them... All the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. So the first thing I really want to point out here is that for hundreds of years, this is not this is not Yahweh just snapping. Okay, this is all. I mean, he's sovereign. He's outside of time. This is part of his plan of redemption. But for hundreds of years, Yahweh has sent them prophet after prophet 
after prophet after prophet. I know we tend to read the book of the, of the books of the Bible kind of in order and think, well, cool, Jeremiah is the second prophet. That's nice. Um, no, just because he's second in the book of the major prophets doesn't mean he was the second prophet that was sent to Judah to warn them of their sin. No, he's trying to bring them back to obedience to the covenant. That's what he says in verse 7. And in verse 8, Yahweh accuses them of having not listened to those repeated attempts to reach them. And that's a constant theme in Jeremiah. It reminds me of maybe some time I've spent in home with my children. You don't listen. Um, Yahweh reaching out by sending his word and the people refusing to listen. Then in chapter 7, verse 13, And now because you've done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Jeremiah says the same things about his own ministry, actually, in chapter 25, verse 3 and 4. He says, From the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day. This is the 23rd year in which the Lord of the Lord has come to me, and I've spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But, get this, stop me if you've heard it before, you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear. Instead, here's the thing, and here's the real kicker of Isaiah. The people have listened to something, but you know what they've listened to? The untruth and lying words of false prophets. So, so just to put the cherry on top, not only have they refused to listen to the Lord's prophets over and over and over again, but they're actually listening to false prophets and doing the exact opposite. And Jeremiah is huge on exposing these false prophets. Some of the language here. Yahweh says this in Jeremiah 6.14. He says, They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Reminds me of Ephesians 2, by the way. You see, they just tell the people what they want to hear instead of the truth that they need to hear. And I wonder how many preachers in our days, particularly in America, might be guilty of the same thing. You know something about that preaching, the tickling ears? You know what it is? Worthless. It's actually a waste of time. Uh, The preaching here that says peace, peace when there is no peace, which is... Not preaching that shares the fullness of the gospel? According to Jeremiah, it's worthless. In chapter 7, verse 8, Jeremiah says, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Again, I just wonder how far removed much of America's evangelicalism is, is from these things. Right? In, in, in many churches, the word of God is not preached. It's substituted for empty words designed to scratch itching ears. In turn, therefore, many Christians don't grow and churches are not built up with genuine, gospel-believing, Christ-loving, Holy Spirit-filled, Bible-saturated disciples of the Lord. And we wonder why the church is MIA today. Friends, I can't tell you a more encouraging thing for my people to say, uh, and I, I feel like this is one of the things that happens in expository preaching, is there is, there is at times some... Uh, Maybe drudgery is not the right word, right? But yeah, okay, when you preach through the book of 2 Samuel and it takes you almost two years, you can kind of get some Samuel fatigue, right? Have you felt that? It's okay. Um, That's okay. But here's one of the things that you don't notice, and I'm never more encouraged than when I hear this, although it's also discouraging at times. Uh, When people go on vacation and they go to, to different churches, 
and they'll come back and say, Pastor Cody, they didn't even read from the scriptures. Right? I, that they barely looked at the text. There's nothing that warms my heart more than that. Let me just say that. Right? There's nothing that will encourage me to go through another book for four or five years than that right there. Because all the things that I possibly can give you mean nothing if it's not the word of God. Right? And, and this is a problem. And this has historically been a problem for God's people. They often love to have their ears tickled. Often. So that just means I'm coming for you on Sunday morning. No, I'm kidding. Sort of. Actually, <laughs> this Sunday morning, I'm coming at myself, so uh, pray for me, because it's about the tongue. And y'all know my ability to hold my tongue uh, is not always ideal. So, all right, let's not lose our, lose our focus and think about my sin. Um, let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 11. Do you also notice in verse 8, it says that everyone followed their own evil hearts? Again, we've said this. The issue of the heart's a major thing, and I'm just going to give it a little bit of treatment right here in a minute. Um, in fact, that's probably what we'll pick up with next week, but, but I'll just point that out to you in passing now. Let's go ahead and somebody read verses 9 through 13 of Jeremiah 11. And the Lord said to me, If the Spirit has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, <clears throat> Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go out and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing. Altars to burn incense to Baal. Alright, just a couple of things to point out here. By listening to the false prophets and listening to their own evil hearts, they've turned to other gods. So in verse 11, we hear disaster is coming upon them. And of course, the wrath of Yahweh because of idolatry is another major theme in the book. It may be asked why idolatry, the simple worship of false gods, is such a major ordeal to Yahweh. Well, Bless you. Jeremiah tells us. All right. Turn back all the way to chapter 5. I'll go ahead and I'll look, I just flipped right there, and I'll read verse 7. Jeremiah 5 says this, um, starting in verse 7. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I have fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like well fed, lusty stallions. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A couple things I want to point out here. First, even though these gods are not real, the true worship of them has resulted in other greatly immoral acts. Turning one's back on the true God is to abandon the only true moral criteria there is. And... So it will necessarily result in other unethical behaviors. That sound familiar? Secondly, did you notice verse 9, Yahweh says he must avenge himself. And in verse 12 of chapter 5, he says that they're lying about him. And what this means, in other words, is that Yahweh's name and glory are being defamed. And that's a problem. 
Remember the Exodus, right? The whole theme of the Exodus is the name of Yahweh is to be praised and be shown to be above everything else. He is being made here by these people to look unworthy of fidelity and dishonorable through his people. And, and that's a great evil. So, of course, Yahweh is going to uphold his own glory. How can he not judge sinners who he brought down, was trampled underfoot, that which is of most glory and majesty and splendor in the entire universe, which is the name, fame, and glory of Yahweh? So the people here are judged. All right, back in chapter 11 now. It's interesting that in verse 11, Yahweh also says that he will not listen to them when they call upon him. If people won't listen to him, neither will he listen to them. And then there's another point made in verse 12. When calamity comes, these gods that the people have been trusting in, they're going to run to them, and guess what they're going to find? <laughs> they're not going to be able to save. Another major part of Jeremiah's theology. These false gods that you are rejecting Yahweh for can do nothing for you. They cannot save. They're profitless. Even more so, these idols cannot only save, but they actually positively can steal your entire life away from you. Strange thing. Even though they aren't real, they do have the ability to kill. Jeremiah 4 verse 30 says, And when you're plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your life or your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. So the doctrine that idolatry kills is actually not exclusive to Jeremiah, oddly enough. It's all over the Old Testament. I've got some verses there in the footnotes for you. Hear me. That which one sets his heart on, he will be conformed into the image of that thing. If you set your heart on worthless things, you will become worthless yourself. Jeremiah 2.5. The same principle, however, applies when one sets their heart on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. When you set your heart on Yahweh, you are transformed from one degree to another. She gives a lot to think about in regard to what we really have set our hearts on, right? One last point from Jeremiah 11. Somebody read verse 17. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to Baal. All right, so again, that's, we talked about this repeated over and over, Jeremiah, that this calamity they're experiencing is brought by Yahweh, but it is not Yahweh's fault. It's the fault of the covenant breakers, the people. I'm going to stop there. Because I want to pick up next week in Jeremiah 27, where we talk a little bit uh, about total depravity. And then that should be a good spot, I think, where we could finish Jeremiah, Lamentations, and be back on track a little bit. Okay? All right. Any questions or thoughts about Jeremiah or Isaiah, the back half of Isaiah, or anything else whatsoever? Anything you notice is helpful for you. Encouraging, discouraging. So, so messianic chapters at the end of 
I don't know for each and every one of them. Um, I'm sure at some level they could look and see, particularly in some of the good kings. But it's actually, what's interesting about that prophecy is that it describes a lot of the types of Christ we saw before that prophecy was given. Right? So David had to endure suffering and transgression before he was lifted up to the place of king. Joseph had to endure lots of suffering. So it's almost kind of a reverse fulfillment there, which I know is not technically a prophecy. Um, but I, I would wonder, too, if there is any other type of Christ that comes from Second Kings on that would be a similar pattern. So I think that that's one of the interesting things is that is the pattern for most of the Old Testament types we see of the Messiah is that they must be brought low before they're lifted up. Yeah. Um, there's a... The most common interpretation today amongst the Jewish community is that it's talking about Israel itself. Yeah. Uh, but if you <laughs> if you ask anybody that's Jewish, more often than not, they have never read this chapter, that Isaiah fifty three. Yeah. yeah. Right. So they're as soon as you like, I uh, saw a video where they were reading, they were going around in Israel and they were reading Isaiah fifty three to people, and just asking them like, "What do you think this is?" And they're like, "Oh, it's something about Jesus from the Christian, from the New Testament, the Christian Bible." Yeah. And they were like, no, this is from Isaiah. And, right. and then having a, a platform to be able to share the gospel with people. It was amazing. Yeah. That's, that's a good example that many people probably even look at Israel as saying that they've been brought up. They, but what do we see? That's why Old Testament history is important. Is even when Israel's brought back, they're never brought back to prominence. Right. So so they're thinking, and I feel like this is, this is in, the, in the context of the New Testament, what a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees wrestled with is they were they were thinking they had already experienced the being laid low and being persecuted and brought transgression. So they were waiting for that fulfillment, missing that this was talking about a singular servant. And I'm not saying that that was probably everyone. They had enough there just to, to miss anyways, but likelihood that that could take place. And Isaiah, I heard what we covered tonight, a lot of talk about being comforted, and that reminded me of the Beatitudes. Mm, yeah. You know, predicted from Isaiah, yeah, New Testament, a lot of that. Well, and then you'll see that a lot of the a, a lot of the times too, particularly in the prophets, is because they're look they're they're exposing the sins of the people, which is really exposing the heart. So when Jesus comes on the Sermon on the Mount and he starts not going to necessarily what you've done or haven't done, but who you are in your heart, right? The exposure of the heart. Um, they, they would they should have seen the parallel from that from what's been exposed to them by the prophets. Yeah. Anybody else? All right, remember two things. One, this is only helpful to you if you are reading your Bible. Right? Now, if you're reading your Bible, it should be a tremendous help to you. Specifically in the Old Testament, it teaches that everything in the Old Testament is about the main character of the Bible, which is Jesus Christ. Right. Um, simultaneously, what is our? What are we to do with this? Well, you was this, was this nice information? You're supposed to walk away feeling smarter. Sure. Make disciples. Right. So think about this in my realm. One of two areas. I'm either looking to be discipled, or who can I look to discipled if I've already been discipled? If you haven't. It's ever more important that you attend this class, that you attend one of our grow classes, that you really worship, grow, serve. Because we are about 
the reproduction of the gospel because of exactly what we're commanded to do by Jesus Christ himself, okay? So think about this, okay? I know some things about Isaiah, Jeremiah. What does that look like in my ability to share this with somebody else? Not just apologetically and arguing for the faith, but in really helping to see everyone the main character of the scripture is Jesus Christ, okay? All right, let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for our our people and our time together tonight. Lord, we just pray this is incredibly fruitful. You have uh, spoken to us through your word. Lord, help us and remind us um, that we are nothing if but wretched sinners who are in desperate need of a heart change. And thank you, God, for Jesus Christ, who in the new covenant has gifted us new hearts uh, that, Lord, uh, that have saved us and regenerated uh, our dead hearts and brought us to life. So, Lord, we pray. Uh, We would be stewards of this great gift that, Father, we would seek to glorify and honor you as king because you are worthy of such things. Uh, And, Lord, that you would improve our time in the word day by day as we seek to honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.